Uh, but I do think as someone who would normally be inclined to the Republican viewpoint, there is part of me um, that thinks it would be a good thing if the Republicans got absolutely crushed um, in a few weeks' time, that they lost everything they could possibly lose and got such a shellacking in Barack Obama's uh, famous phrase um, that they reconsidered the path they'd taken over the last four years. Welcome to the Pim Factory, the Addison Institute's podcast. My name is Matthew Lash and I'm the Head of Research at the ASI. In this week's episode, I'm joined by our Head of Programs, Daniel Pryor, and Tom Coppity, who is the Head of Tax at the Centre for Policy Studies, as well as a former Executive Director of the ASI. So Tom, I heard a rumour that you haven't been addictively listening to every single edition of the Pin Factory, and I just think that's a total disgrace. I mean, what have you been doing with your time? Yeah, it's uh, it's a horrible admission to have to make, but I was until now unaware of this no doubt wonderful podcast. Uh, in mitigation, I will say that my wife and I had our first child um, three months well, ago. So that, congratulations! Yeah, yeah, thank you. Although uh, I suppose I could have had him listening to this and uh, you know imparted some wisdom and maybe helped get him to sleep. So um, you know, it's, swings it's around. It's good that us. your child can grow up in a world where the pin factory exists, with all the other mayhem uh, and craziness going on out there. Um, we we will be a, a constant in your child's life, at least now that we're we're back back on air after a, a couple of weeks off. My mum used to put on jazz CDs when I was very young to listen to, but I think the Pin Factory would have been far better. I would have grown up far more sound. <laughs> so, Tom, is it true that back when you were executive director, you uh, had a blog by the name of the Pin Factory? Yeah. So, in fact, um, for a while, on one generation of the Adam Smith Institute website, the the standard ASI blog um, was branded quite handsomely, if I recall, as the Pin Factory. Uh, we had a nice graphic, um, and I guess I guess uh, when Sam Bowman did the the upgrade to the website after I left, that that sort of branding fell by the wayside, which is fine. But I, I'm so glad to see it back up and running with this podcast. Well, we're bringing it back, and we might try to find that old retro logo. So, if we ever upgrade our logo we can we can go back to the good old days i will no doubt have it somewhere if you would like it <laughs> well let's yeah let's let's do that so today we're going to be discussing covid purgatory the state of britain's tax system and the u.s election tier three restrictions are set to be imposed on manchester after talks with local leaders broke down after debates about the extent of local financial support from the central government uh, more than half of England, as well as all of Wales and Scotland, are under some kind of elevated restrictions. Meanwhile, uh, Wales has announced a two-week fire break for lockdown, which uh, somehow sounds even better than a circuit breakup. Um, I suppose this kind of starts off with the question is, uh, do we believe these restrictions are actually going to work to stop coronavirus? Is this the right strategy the government is taking? Or should they be going harder, like Sage suggested, and, and going full lockdown all the time or should we be doing a, a great Barrington declaration style approach where we withdraw the um, non-pharmaceutical interventions as they're technically known and get on with our lives and try to protect the vulnerable? Well, I think that the right balance is somewhere in between your great Barrington declarations and your full-on uh, national lockdown. I mean, it kind of makes sense if you look at different countries with different levels of infections and deaths having different lockdown policies, why not apply that to different areas of the United Kingdom as well? I think if you go too far in one direction or the other, you're kind of missing that that trade-off uh, sweet spot between the economic impact of lockdown measures and, um, 
and public health considerations as well. Although one of the things I would say is that this this current tiered system has a very curious anomaly to it, whereby you have local councils lobbying in some cases to try and get to tier three, because that's where they're more likely to receive uh, government funding and support for the, the kind of businesses shutdowns that will have to happen uh, as a result of it. I mean, tier three restrictions, if you look at pubs that don't sell food, for example, having to shut down, at least uh, the local authorities in the relevant areas will have access to some additional funding in order to try and cope with the, the economic impact of that. Whereas with this tier two, you're kind of in a twilight zone where businesses are allowed to make, remain open without any customers. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it, there doesn't seem to be an end in sight. And, and frankly, I don't see the current set of restrictions really making a huge difference. I, I mean, I would like them to, but I think that we've lost some of the coherence and simplicity that we, we initially had with the first lockdown. I mean, to a certain extent, that's inevitable when you start to break things down regionally and locally, uh, as it makes sense to do. But, you know, for example, as I understand it, my wife and I can't go and see my sister and her family, um, but we could go to Weatherspoons for an evening meal. Now, I think that the latter of those probably puts us at far greater risk of uh, exposure to the virus than the former. Um, and so there is just a, a degree of irrationality. Um, and I think you know, it's an inevitable problem. Governments are trying to balance competing aims, um, you know, trying not to completely tank the hospitality economy if they can avoid it and so on. Uh, but one of the dangers there is that you end up with a muddled system. And I think that, you know, there is a danger um, that Britain ends up having restrictions which are, on the one hand, um, too onerous and everybody resents them. And on the other hand, not strict enough uh, or not effective enough to actually deal with the problem. Now, I think that, you know, it, for me, lockdown versus no lockdown, Great Barrington versus shut it all is kind of the wrong debate. And, and, you know, I am on the side of people who say, you know, probably better to shut down than to have a free-for-all. But I don't think it has to be black and white. I think that if you are very effective in particular ways, um, then maybe the wider lockdowns can be avoided. And I think that we've shied away um, from some of the obvious but difficult things we could have done to really get things under control, like travel restrictions early on, like central quarantine, um, like a sort of real laser-like focus on shutting down any kind of super spreader event or risk of a super spreader event. And I think if we'd done those things, obviously they would have, uh, you know, they would have infringed on the liberty of lots of people. But at the same time, they might have been a more effective response to the virus than a lower level of more broadly spread restrictions. And I think that's where we are at the moment. Well, I think we're very much in, in the worst of, of both worlds in a lot of ways, because ideally what we would have liked to do at the start of the crisis is to go Taiwan or South Korea or Hong Kong or even kind of basically New Zealand or, or most parts of Australia's strategy where you have a harsh lockdown, including some quite severe uh, travel restrictions. But that means that you don't let the virus um, seed into the community in the first place. You don't let it become... Um, endemic. And I think that's where we're currently in, in any practical terms, even if we get a mostly effective vaccine, which we're now being promised in the new year, which we have to remember we were promised before the end of the year, but now hopefully in the new year, um, even then we're not going to be able to stop the spread completely in the community. This It's still going to be going around just because it's very difficult, if not impossible to eradicate now. And we're not 
we were never really quite willing to do what it would take to eradicate it. Partly because our original strategy was, of course, not to eradicate it, it was to let it spread. And then the government flipped strategy to a quite harsh lockdown, but it turned out that lockdown wasn't completely effective. Um, and turns out all the what we were supposed to meant to do during the first lockdown, and the first lockdown um, got quite widespread support because it was at the very least meant to be quite short, even though it ended up being a bit longer, but it was quite targeted in its goal, which was to stop the overload of the healthcare system. It then became a lockdown to limit the spread of coronavirus, um, which successfully worked at the beginning during uh, the summer months. But now we've seen as we let people go back to school, we sent all the kids to university where there have been a lot of super spreader events. And then we um, also have a changing weather and we're heading into the winter. Um, we've ended up in a situation where we, we don't have um, any kind of effective coronavirus control system in place, despite spending £12 billion on tests and trays. So we're in, I think we're in this very <laughs> difficult situation where we, nothing's really going to work the government's doing, but they've still got to try to do something because if they don't try to do something, then it, it will be much worse. Yeah, I, I worry that there's a kind of uh, a politicization of some of the aspects of this tiered system, especially if you look at the, the schools and university and the, the super spreader events that you mentioned, Matt, because I know it's on every time where I've looked at the kind of guidance pictures for your tier one, tier two and tier three. In each of them, it will say schools will remain open, schools will remain open. It makes it very, very clear that well, the government's kind of had its... Um, and its nose burn a little bit through through getting involved in school shutdowns or related things over the past few months. And they seem very eager, even though schools and universities are arguably stronger vectors of um, of transmission than, say, for example, going down to a, a pub for a, a Sunday night pint or something like that. Uh, so I, I worry a little bit that the kind of restrictions that are being put in place, they aren't just trying to be justified by public health goals of, of reducing coronavirus uh, transmission. They're also there um, to kind of cover the government's back when it comes to the in inevitable political backlash. Yeah, I think that there's a, a very British approach inherent in this, which is, you know, muddling through. Now, muddling through is a, a fine <laughs> approach to many things. It probably isn't the right approach to a global pandemic. Um, <laughs> and, and I think we have, we have to wonder, um, are our institutions of government really set up um, to handle this kind of thing effectively. And, you know, personally, I don't put the blame on the particular set of politicians or officials that are that are there at the moment and have caught this hot potato. You know, maybe better decisions could have been made at certain times, you know. But, but frankly, I don't think any of the other governments that I've experienced, um, certainly in my adult life, uh, which probably takes us back to sort of Tony Blair, would they have done all that much better? You know, I'm not sure. Uh, it, it's it's a shame. Uh, it's not a surprise to us as libertarians, um, but it's not a but you know it's no shock that government sort of fails to do things effectively. That they're a bit rubbish at anything involving a hint of technology. Um, <laughs> yeah. So. This brings us to uh, to testing and tracing, which I know you've written about very recently for the Times, Matt. And it seems as though there has been a kind of all of the the focus in the news cycle has been on the tiered restrictions and lockdown versus no lockdown and how much restrictions we should have. Whereas there hasn't been anywhere near enough focus on our test and trace strategy. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right, Daniel. And thanks for the, uh, the what we call in Australian terms the Dorothy Dixer, the, uh, the the question to the minister, which is uh, <laughs> sympathetic to get to get them to to say what they want to say. I, I mean, so what we found with test and trace is we had the 
initial colossal screw up with Public Health England, which we've talked about quite a lot on the podcast, about how they centralised management of the system, how they didn't let a lot of labs do it. And the government did at the start of April take over management of the, the testing system to try to expand it. The problem is, while it went from Public Health England management to the health department management, it more or less followed a, a structurally a similar strategy, which is a relatively small number of labs, what's known as the lighthouse labs, that do tens of thousands of tests every day using a very precise, very expensive, um, very narrow test, called a, which everyone's heard of now, PCR test, where you know they shove something down your throat and then that's uh, sent off to a centralized lab. It has to go into a PCR machine, which um, the technicalities of this is that you're, you're, um, it's an RNA virus, but you need to replicate and, and get the DNA out of it in order to spot whether or not coronavirus is in the sample. It's using those kind of tests, which are mostly highly accurate. In fact, potentially even too accurate because they pick up viruses, not necessarily contagious. Um, but that just takes a long time, both the logistics of getting um, your sample to the lab, as well as the process in the lab itself. And it's it's quite expensive. It's quite intensive. Um, what I wrote about uh, today, this has been Tuesday, the 20th of October in, in the Times, was the fact that there were other technologies available that are almost as accurate as a PCR test. Now, that the sensitivity is typically slightly lower, but still well over 95%, um, 98 99%, depending on which test you use. Um, but rather than having to be sent off to a centralised lab, um, they can either be done at a point of care, um, like a lamp test, which only requires about 15 to 30 minutes. You'd, you'd either spit in a tube or you'd, you'd, put a, a, you'd take a swab and then you could do that at an airport or a train station or, say, a sports stadium before you go inside. And then you would have more or less certainty about who doesn't, who doesn't have coronavirus and who is particularly contagious at the time and could spread it to a lot of other people. There's also these new antigen tests, which are operate kind of like a pregnancy test, um, where you just take a sample and it, it runs along a sheet of paper. And if it spots the antigens from coronavirus, it'll let you know. Basically do that at home in about 15 minutes. And those tests should cost... Um, somewhere between five and 20 pounds a pop. So you could probably do them for basically almost every day or at least every week for the whole population or as you need to go to a certain event or a certain business meeting or whatever else. So there's all these other technologies that haven't been used widely, haven't been approved for use, but the technology is there and the, the technology exists in which we can overcome a lot of our testing problem. We just have to think about it slightly differently and, and use diff a different method. Now, the good news is just as I was writing this piece, the government did come out with an announcement saying that they're going to trial some of these new technologies. It doesn't really go far enough because it can't just be the government doing it. Um, it needs to actually be businesses, needs to be individuals taking responsibilities, it needs to be Boots Pharmacy offering the service. It needs to be uh, you as you walk into your workplace um, having this option to take a test on the way in. And, and that's going to require a, approval for private sector to do the testing more or less rather than having it as a government-led initiative, um, which is just simply too slow and too logistically complex for any state to manage, as you were saying, Tom. Just a, a real example of the power and influence of the Adam Smith Institute there that you just have to start writing a newspaper piece uh, and that's enough to get the government to start trialling your particular method. So well done on that, Matt. Uh, well, I mean, so I'd written, I'd written briefly about this a few times previously, but uh, I think it was very good to see the government um, finally on the right track. Just they need to go. Obviously, they always need to go a little bit further, according to the Adam Smith Institute, as uh, Tom would well know from his time. Nothing is nothing is ever good enough for us. There's always more to be done. Quite right. <laughs> Our friends over at the Pond at the Tax Foundation have released their latest International Tax Competitive Index. 
uh, very exciting stuff. The UK has now dropped a place and is now ranked 22 of 36 OECD countries. We were praised for our low corporate income tax rate, but chastised for our narrow VAT base and inability to write off investment costs. Now, Tom, this is this is your specialty. This is your moment to shine. Can you tell us why tax reform is so important and, and what this tax competitive index tells us? What does this mean? Yeah, sure. Um, well, look, I mean, I think, first of all, tax reform is important because economic growth is important. Uh, for far too long in this country, we've kind of taken economic growth uh, for granted. Policymakers have acted as if it's something that happens to them that they have to respond to, but not something that they really have any meaningful control over. And of course, there are always exogenous factors that affect the economy. Uh, coronavirus is a perfect example of that. But I think fundamentally, if you pursue the right policies, uh, you can raise a country's growth rate. Um, and that is something that the government ought to be doing. If you look at the levers they have at their disposal, um, uh, tax is one of the big ones, not the only one. Um, and obviously, you guys have written a lot about planning reform, for example. I think that would be absolutely vital to getting the UK growth rate up um, and other regulatory reforms as well. But nevertheless, I think tax reform has to be one of the central elements of any meaningful pro-growth policy agenda. And that agenda is something that we really need right now. I think probably more than ever, as much of a cliche as that is. And so when you when you turn to look at the Tax Foundation's International Tax Competitiveness Index, um, I think this is a fantastically useful tool um, for looking at the UK tax system compared to its developed world competitors and really pinpointing what are the areas where we fall down and what are the areas where actually reform could make the biggest difference to our growth prospects. The competitiveness index, it's important to note, you know, it's not just, well, it isn't at all, actually, a measure of tax burdens in various countries. You know, if it was, Sweden wouldn't do quite well. I think it comes seventh in the overall rankings. Um, and you know, Britain and Estonia with similar size tax burdens as a percentage of GDP wouldn't be first and 22nd out of 36 in these rankings, respectively, if it was about tax burdens. Now, what it is about is, on the one hand, marginal tax rates, um, which are important. Obviously, the lower your marginal tax rates as a rule, uh, the more competitive your tax system is going to be internationally. And, you know, frankly, the less it impinges on economic activity, decisions to invest, to work, and so on. So marginal rates are part of it, but a big part of it as well is the neutrality of your tax system. And that sounds a bit technical, but, you know, basically there are good and bad ways for governments to raise revenue. Um, and good ways of raising revenue are, are basically neutral. They don't affect behavior any more than they absolutely have to. They don't have huge administrative complexities. They don't bring big deadweight costs. Now, on the other hand, there are ways of raising money. Stamp duty land tax would be a good example of this that are incredibly distortionary, uh, which cause huge amounts of economic damage that is completely out of line with the amount of revenue raised. Um, and so the key to doing well on these rankings that the Tax Foundation um, puts out is having relatively low marginal tax rates, but also having a good underlying tax structure, um, a tax structure which isn't messing around with economic decision making. And, you know, clearly, look, the, the UK comes in the bottom half of these rankings. We're not doing too well. Um, we fall down on both categories, but I think particularly when it comes to the neutrality of the tax system, um, ours is not of a high quality, put it that way. 
Mm. So, I mean, ultimately, tax, to use the classic metaphor, is is plucking the feathers without killing the goose and trying to get off as many feathers as you can, at least if that's your perspective from a, a tax-maximizing perspective. But I think there's a technocratic need that, that shouldn't really be partisan to say that you want to provide uh, revenue that's necessary for the government to, to serve its functions, whatever we decide those functions may be, but without disrupting economic activity. Um, and classically, although obviously the Laffer curve is very heavily debated, at some point, if your tax rates are too high or, or your tax system is designed in such a way to discourage people from uh, starting a business, from investing, from having transactions, that's going to be worse uh, for your country than having a tax system that raises the same amount of revenue but is not um, disruptive and, and dislocating of certain activity. Um, I suppose, uh, Tom, the, qu- the question then becomes more in the specifics, which is, why has the UK fallen so far on this tax rating? Uh, why are we why are we in the, the bottom half? Um, and, and why don't we talk about this? Why are, we, why are we talking about tax reform anymore? Where's this debate gone? Yeah. You know, I think one of the reasons we don't talk about this more is that people don't realise that the UK doesn't have a relatively good tax system. I think there's a certain kind of arrogance in, in the British psyche and, and, and even in the free market community here. Um, which thinks, you know, actually, if you compare us with other European countries, say, we assume that we're more free market, that we have a more pro-growth tax system than they do. Well, if you look at the Tax Foundation's rankings, that doesn't appear to be the case. There are 16 EU or European Economic Area countries that are judged to have more competitive, more pro-growth tax systems than the UK is. Um, And so I think just simply getting that message out there, we, we all tend to be a little bit uh, parochial, I suppose, in our knowledge of this subject. Um, why would we know a lot about other tax systems around Europe or around the West, rest of the world? Um, but we shouldn't assume um, that we have a an especially good tax system. I think also um, our method of making tax policy is not really conducive um, to the kind of tax policies that we would like to see. Uh, I don't know if we're unique in our sort of annual budgets and the, the the rigmarole of the pulling the rabbit out of the hat, the tax cut at the end of the budget speech, uh, or this real, you know, the, the idea of tax policy making as headline generating fiscal event um, is probably quite unusual to most other countries. Uh, and, and, and when you do tax policy in that way, um, when it is a kind of annual set piece, uh, where you're really chasing headlines, um, that just doesn't help. It doesn't help matters. I think what you need is a much more comprehensive, um, sort of thorough examination of the tax system and almost an overall reconsideration of how much revenue do you want to raise, what is the best way to raise it, and with those things in mind, how would you structure your tax system? But we have a, a political system which doesn't really allow any chancellor, however good their instincts, um, that kind of room for manoeuvre and that kind of room for thought. Uh, and so, you know, so often in budgets, you will get one tax measure, which sounds very good. And then there are all sorts of little tweaks um, buried in the fine print, which are sort of clawing the revenue back in various kinds of distorting ways. But because they're not the headline, people don't focus on them. And just over time, you get a real accrual um, of this sort of detritus in the tax system, if you like, um, all of these little measures which add up to a very irrational structure. Um, and that that's, a, that's the sort of Gordian knot of tax reform that we have to somehow find a way through. Yeah, the politicisation of it, as you mentioned, is, is definitely a, 
particularly British phenomenon. And one example that springs to mind is the uh, reduction in uh, headline rate of corporation tax in the 2010s, which again, you know, kind of made the headlines and was praised as a, a pro-business measure going to stimulate growth. But of course, at the same time, we uh, made it more difficult for businesses to, to claim back the cost of their investment against their tax bill. So we had this situation where all of the headlines were suggesting this is a kind of pro-growth tax reform. And then in the background, a kind of fiddly technical change that no one paid too much attention to and ended up blunting most of the, the potential positive effects of that change. And the other thing in regards to politicization, Matt, you mentioned that the famous uh, idea of plucking the goose to obtain the largest amount of feathers with the smallest amount of hissing. Uh, the problem with that is that some of the flaws in our in our tax system in particular that are highlighted in this tax competitiveness index, uh, to fix them would be extremely unpopular. So, for example, if you look at our narrow base for VAT compared to many other countries, I don't think there are many chancellors that would be willing to broaden the base for VAT and do that as a kind of political stunt to, to increase their popularity. Uh, so you've got this situation where the ideal tax system is definitely not the most popular one, despite the fact that VAT is, is a fairly efficient way of raising revenue. There's going to be all sorts of, of objections for any sort of base broadening. So you've got the twin worries of, well, you can't uh, announce a, a kind of good tax cut uh, without having to fiddle around the edges and, and blunt the positive effects of it. And then you've also got the problem of huge public backlash if you do make any uh, shifts towards more efficient taxes and away from the ones that are currently too high. I think that's extremely well put, Dan. The one issue that we've focused on recently at the ASI, and I know, Tom, you've done a lot of work on previously, is this what we call the factory tax, which is the inability to fully write off uh, new investments in, in buildings and machinery. And that's what you were getting at a second ago. Daniel, although we have a relatively low corporate rate, we have a system that discourages investments and it, it biases towards um, people-related expenditure are probably against the kind of traditional industrial base of the country. So I think that's one tax reform that could be relatively popular and, and the government was said to be considering it, um, but sadly have now cancelled the budget. But it's something the Australian government has just done is, is more or less for a short period of time introduce full expensing for most companies in Australia, which means particularly as we're, we're trying to recover from this huge economic shock, you're encouraging investment again. Um, Tom, will that take us up the rankings and is that a good idea from a tax perspective? Yeah, great idea from a tax perspective would very definitely move us up the rankings. And if I if I may sort of give my own work a quick plug, um, the reason I'm fairly well versed in the Tax Foundation's International Tax Competitiveness Index is because I've been working in my role as head of tax at the CPS with the Tax Foundation um, for a while now uh, on a sort of in-depth study of the UK's tax competitiveness using uh, their index as a tool effectively to audit the UK tax system uh, to identify the real comparative weaknesses and then of course to come up with a package of reforms that would move us up the rankings. So what we've got, got coming out this weekend actually um, is a fairly hefty Ooh. tax reform report. Uh, exciting. Package, I know, Maybe. what could be more exciting? You heard it here first. A package of reform proposals that would take Britain from 22nd um, in the rankings into the top 10. Um, and this isn't, 
Well, <laughs> this isn't a pie-in-the-sky set of reform proposals at all. I've tried to make them practical, and so key to that, central to that, has been making them revenue-neutral, or at least having a way you could do them that we think would be revenue-neutral. Um, because you know, it's very easy to come up with an idealised pro-growth tax system if you assume that you can mas- magically um, sort of lop off a chunk of government. I think experience has shown that's very difficult, uh, as much as you know, libertarians might like to do it. And I think particularly at the moment, you know, most people are talking about tax raises, not tax cuts. So a revenue neutral package of pro-growth tax reforms. Um, the reason I hesitated slightly by, you know, in, in implying that this would be um, very easy or simple to, to implement is because, of course, as Daniel said, um, there are always trade-offs in tax policy. Um, and, you know, frankly, if you want to have lower taxes on investment, if you want to eliminate um, taxes on transactions like stamp duty, for example, if you want to get rid of the the measures in our tax system that are really causing a lot of economic damage, in the short term, you have to make up the revenue somewhere else. Um, And and frankly, broad-based consumption taxes are the place where you look to raise revenue. And so then you get into all those difficulties um, about broadening the VAT base. This is sort of the the, the history of the omnishambles budget that almost put paid to George Osborne for a while, and all these kinds of things. So it, it's not easy. It is difficult. Um, but I do think that what we've come up with, uh, and that I'm sure all of your listeners and, and, and yourselves can can look forward to reading over your uh, your breakfast on Sunday, <laughs> will will hopefully be a good contribution to that debate. And if not a package of things that the government will say, yes, we're going to do that right away, something that they can look at and say, this is the direction of travel that we ought to follow if we're going to have a more pro-growth tax system. So to horribly stretch the metaphor, we want to try and pluck the same number of feathers from the goose and gradually get a, a fatter and juicier goose um, and try and minimise the hissing through uh, talking about why actually VAT reform is not necessarily regressive over the long term, etc. Right, that sort of thing. Um, I, you know, to even torture the metaphor a bit more, I mean, if we could fatten the goose for Christmas, that would be wonderful. Um, but <laughs> Well, before we get into any more metaphors, I think it might be time to, to move on uh, before everyone switches off uh, their, their recording. We are less than a fortnight away from the US election. Uh, the latest edition of Reason Magazine, our libertarian friends over in the States, uh, made the free market case against both Trump, the big spending, big debt trade protectionist who almost tortures uh, refugees and closes America to outsiders, uh, against Biden, the likely even bigger spending uh, protectionist. I suppose the, the, the first question that comes to mind is, how should we view this context? Do we do we particularly like Biden? Do we like Trump? Do we dislike both of them as much as as reason? Uh, Tom, I might go to you first just because I know you've mm. spent some time over in the US and you might be able to explain uh, that political culture better to us than, than we can. I've worked at Reason Foundation as well. So, <laughs> yeah. So, look, I mean, I, I've always been drawn to PJ O'Rourke's line about elections, you know, don't vote. It only encourages the bastards. Um, but if we if we leave that aside, um, you know, US elections are rarely an edifying spectacle. I don't think this one is is any different. Um, should we care? I think, yes, we should. You know, the world has to care about what happens in American politics because America is enormously powerful geopolitically. And also the health of the American economy, I think, has a big impact on the rest of the world. Yeah, it really is 
the one of the engines of of corporate growth of of innovation of technological advances in business and so on and so if if america doesn't do well um the rest of the world is going to struggle so we should pay attention and we should hope um for political leaders there who are going to make good decisions that implement good policies and all that fine stuff now do we have a candidate available who is going to do those wonderful things i'm not sure that we do um it's a tricky one isn't it i think well maybe it's not so tricky but for for a free market perspective if if you're just leaving out personalities and any broader sort of cultural aspects i think you can probably say that you know under another republican administration taxes will probably be lower regulations will be less onerous and frankly both sides will be pretty bad on free trade so you might say well, you know, let's stick with Republicans. That's more to our taste, even if we don't like it all that much um, overall. But I do think this is a bit different. And, you know, it's not my place to tell anyone how to vote, at least of all in another country. Uh, But I do think as someone who would normally be inclined to the Republican viewpoint, there is part of me um, that thinks it would be a good thing if the Republicans got absolutely crushed um, in a few weeks' time, that they lost everything they could possibly lose and got such a shellacking, in Barack Obama's uh, famous phrase, um, that they reconsidered the path they'd taken over the last four years. Um, I mean, you want something, I think, to happen to the GOP, as has happened to the Labour Party in this country, um, to to realise that the candidate they have leading them is wholly unsuitable um, for the job um, and is sort of an embarrassment to the brand and any sort of philosophy or ideology that might lie behind it. Look, I found Donald Trump very amusing for quite a long time. Um, and I think that's easy to do when it's not your country. Uh, he still makes me laugh from time to time. But eventually a joke gets old. And I think we reached that point quite a long time ago. So I guess having said I'm not going to tell anyone how to vote, you can probably guess um, what will make me happy and uh, what will put a frown on my face uh, in a couple of weeks' time. But I think that's sort of the long and short of it. No good options, but one is probably less bad, both in the short term and definitely in the long term um, for the free market movement that we're all part of. Yeah, I, I think I'm I'm broadly on similar ground to you on this one, Tom, in thinking that actually the Republicans probably do, do deserve a, a good drubbing at the polls in order to make them reconsider the direction that they've headed in over the past four years. I am a bit concerned that sometimes um, people who are in the free market sphere, who are very strongly leaning towards Biden, uh, are doing so as a result of Trump's personality, which is horrible uh, and odious. Um, And I certainly don't make any kind of excuses or um, anything for it. But I worry that the, the focus is still a little bit too far from the economic side of things. You've obviously got some of Trump's pretty terrible um, immigration and and refugee policies that have come in. Uh, That's very important to focus on, and that's a consideration. But if you look at his kind of economic record in terms of growth, in terms of jobs and productivity, even some of his tax reforms, I mean, under his administration, they implemented uh, the abolishing the factory tax that we were talking about in the previous section. Uh, I think you have to moderate somewhat your, your criticism of them on the economic sphere. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's right. Um, I don't think that you can put all of the boom down to Trump's policies, uh, as much as, for example, I like a lot of that tax reform. Um, just as I don't think you can put 
the the more recent difficulties uh, down to Trump. I mean, again, obviously, I think the US administration could have responded better to the coronavirus outbreak and so on. But you know, Trump Trump rode the wave to a certain extent of a, a booming economy and a rising stock market. He followed policies which helped in some respects, and that and that's a good thing. And obviously. Um, the administration deserves credit and praise for the things that it got right. Um, we should think about things in terms of economics, certainly. And I think there's a big open question here as to whether a Biden administration, would it be run by the Joe Biden, who was Barack Obama's vice president, by the Joe Biden, who's a sort of long running moderate in on the Democrat side of American politics, I think? Or will it get hijacked by a more radical leftist tendency, uh, which is very prominent in the Democrat Party in the US, um, and which certainly, you know, Biden being nominated um, as their presidential candidate seemed like a riposte to that, um, you know, the the Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, AOC worldview. Um, And actually, I think it's, I've probably been a bit unfair to Elizabeth Warren to put her quite in that category. But, you know, How much of a riposte is a Biden presidency going to be to that tendency? Um, Is he an acceptable face for a party which will pursue what we all know will be extremely damaging economic policies Um, and other stuff maybe on the the cultural side, which just stokes those culture wars in the US even more, um, which which maybe makes the sort of Trump element on the right um, stronger, that, that, that means it won't fade away at all. You know, that would be the big worry. Um, but there is a chance, I think, that Biden governs as a moderate, as his record would suggest. Uh, and I think that would probably be a good thing for everyone concerned. Uh, worth saying as well that when we look at US politics from the outside, we focus so much on the presidency um, that we lose a lot of the, the, the diversity and variation that there is in American politics, um, both in terms of the power that Congress holds, but also in terms of the powers that are you know, still exercised by states and local governments and so on. Um, And so there are a lot of checks and balances in the US system. It's not as prone to wild swings in policy from from one side to the other, maybe, as the UK would be with its parliamentary system. Um, And and I suppose the reason I I raise all this is is to say that historically, when presidential administrations in the US have have come in, um, maybe with a big mandate, they've tended to overreach and then they've tended to sort of course correct after a couple of years when you get midterm elections to Congress. So, you know, could you get a Democrat whitewash and then two years of very left wing policies and then a big backlash where things swing back towards the Republican side and you get kind of what you had with with Bill Clinton, um, where it suddenly becomes a sort of centrist, almost neoliberal government. Gosh, you know, what a wonderful thing that would be um, with, with a conservative um, element in the legislature and a more liberal element in the White House. Maybe, maybe. And I know my former colleagues at the Cato Institute had looked at this at one point and they found that actually for for small government, if small government is what you believe in, the best combination seems to be a Democratic president and a Republican Congress. So, you know, weird that that would be the case, but it does seem to turn out that way. Who knows how things are going to go over the next few years? Just on the question of whether Biden will be kind of captured by some of the more radical elements of the Democrats, I have a, a fairly optimistic view of this as one of the reasons why I do lean quite strongly to, towards Biden myself. And it's that it seems as though even 
though Biden and um, and his running mate Kamala Harris both have quite storied history, shall we say, with um, with some social liberal issues. So, say for example, drug policy. Uh, they both have pretty terrible records in it on it in the past. If you look at um, mass incarceration, etc., neither of them come out looking particularly rosy. And in fact, even you know perhaps less rosy than Trump with his recent First Step Act. But it seems as though what's happening is that they're going to be more moderate on the economic side of things. They haven't been captured quite by the, the AOCs and the Bernie Sanders of this world, but it seems as though they are trying to protect their left flank, as it were, by moving to the left on social issues. So actually you end up with kind of the, the best of both worlds from a, a neoliberal perspective and you know, advocating things like uh, adult use, cannabis decriminalization on a federal level, um, some more kind of criminal justice reform related policies as well. Uh, so my hope and an expectation is that uh, with a democratic president, what we're going to get is not as big a leftward shift on the economy, the, the economy side of things, but a significant kind of liberal shift on the social side of things. And to me, that would be excellent, really. Yeah, I, I think that's probably more or less true, particularly um, from kind of a social libertarian perspective, and, and that will very much be a, a course correction to Trump, while at the same time, of course, uh, Trump has managed, I wouldn't say stack the bench, but um, to the extent to which the judiciary is is excessively involved in policymaking in the US, that will kind of also um, put a restraint on any excessive um, urges to, to do things from the executive branch that perhaps should be legislated, um, which I think is tends to happen in the US. I mean, I, I kind of, in a broader sense, am sympathetic to the article, which I'm a friend of the podcast, uh, The Spectators, Kate Andrews, wrote as a lifelong Republican saying for the first time ever she'd be voting for Biden as a Democrat, not because she thought that Biden would be particularly good on economics, just uh, and acknowledging that Trump has done a lot of good work in terms of cutting red tape and um, cutting taxes, although that's largely been counterbalanced by the trade protectionism, which has um, undermined any potential benefit, as well as the catastrophically awful handling of um, coronavirus, um, which is the point at which you find, at least I find myself, I say, although he wouldn't necessarily have done any differently to any other president, uh, having someone who is as unserious as Trump in the White House at a moment of such extraordinary pressure, I think really shows his weaknesses. And I think his weaknesses have been shown time and time again, just with the, the nonsense that he tends to spread. I mean, but that's it though. Kate's kind of main underlying argument was that she wanted someone in the, in the White House in the most powerful position in the world representing America to the globe who had proper decorum and acted like a president. And I, I think just that on itself, at least particularly from a, a foreign policy perspective, from our perspective outside of the US, um, the US is global position being at a weak state, as you were getting out at the start, Tom, the reason why we care about these American elections so much is because America is supposed to lead the world. And that's something that America hasn't done very well in recent history. And I think Trump is in many ways uh, a weak leader. Um, you can point to some successes, and I think particularly in the Middle East, um, some of the, the Israel deals that have been signed are, are fantastic. But overall, I think having Trump in the White House um, delegitimizes America as a global power and has, has enabled, um, even though he's gone harsh against China, uh, has enabled China to, to take up a lot of positions, take up a lot of power in global institutions. Because if you just reject these institutions, you effectively surrender them uh, to China in practice because they're the, the alternative global power base these days. And the World Health Organization is a good example of this, where, where the states have given up on that organization. They effectively let it 
be taken over by somebody who was China-backed and then they didn't handle the pandemic particularly well and the, the head of WHO was consistently backing China's approach of lockdowns and, and whatever else um, and be refusing to ask the tough questions of China about where this virus actually came from and why it was allowed um, to leave the country or, for example, why China shut down flights internally but allowed flights internationally from Wuhan um, in, in January and into February. So I think all those kind of senses of American leadership is something that kind of leads me towards Biden. And then it comes to the question of what does Biden mean for the UK um, and, and Britain and, and does it have any effect? And I suppose there's one school of thought that says, well, you know, Trump is pro-Brexit and therefore isn't that fantastic? It should be pro-UK. So in that sense, I, I, it's a potential downside. On the other hand, though, it might actually be easier, potentially, Tom, to sign a trade deal with the, with an America led by Biden than an America led by Trump, surely. Honestly, I'm not, I'm not sure about that. Um, I think that you know, possibly one of the big downsides um, from Britain's perspective of Biden in the White House is that there won't be as much of an impetus from American policymakers uh, towards a free trade deal with the UK. Now, I mean, Trump, obviously, um, yeah, it's, it's pretty clear that he has all of this anti-trade rhetoric and his actions have backed that up a lot. At the same time, you know, I don't think that he was ever really opposed to free trade in broad terms with similar developed countries like the UK. And indeed, for those kind of political presentational reasons to do with Brexit, to do with some of his British heritage, um, was, I believe, genuinely quite keen um, on a good trade deal with the UK. Um, and I think that, it, you know, Obama had that famous thing of saying that Britain would have to get to the back of the queue. Um, and I think David Cameron probably asked him to say that. And I think it probably backfired uh, in the during the Brexit referendum. Um, but it is... I think, sort of the truth, not that Britain would be at the back of the queue, but that with Trump gone, um, how to put this, Britain wouldn't get particularly special treatment. Um, I think that we, we would line up with everybody else who wants a trade deal with the US and, and who has to deal with the United States Trade Representative Office. Um, and it would be a very hard-headed negotiation, which America has a lot more experience and expertise in, frankly, than we do, um, without a sort of voice coming from the very top saying, I want to get this done. Um, you know, these are my people, let's make Brexit, help them make Brexit a success, and so on. Um, so I, I do think it's going to be difficult. It was always going to be harder than people thought. But I think it, it, it potentially under Biden could be quite a slow and drawn out process getting to that trade deal. Yeah, I think that's, that's almost certainly a risk. Uh, although that said, I, I don't think it was it's shaping up to a particularly easy deal to negotiate in any case for the, for the reasons you said the US trade negotiators are not pushovers and they will protect their interests and by protect their interests I mean try to avoid any opening up particularly something like the agriculture sector which isn't reciprocated um, you would think it would still be a deal that the states would want to make on the basis that it doesn't seem like the EU US deal is really going anywhere maybe that would come back um, under a Biden presidency, but it does it feel like a, a big opportunity for what is the, the world's fifth biggest economy, the world's biggest economy, that, to have a, a kind of comprehensive deal that would be in, in both sides' favour. Um, the, the last thing, uh, and we don't have too much time left, but the last thing I just want to start kind of mulling over, we kind of led, led to this assumption that, you know, all the polls are pointing towards Biden. Of course, you, you could have a, a, a last-minute um, Trump surge, but I, I think the consensus is pointing otherwise. Um, I suppose the question then is, and you were kind of getting to this earlier on with some of your comments, Tom, 
what, what does this actually mean for the centre-right? How should we see the last four years um, and the kind of both Trump as a kind of populist figure and then the kind of ideological movement that kind of just surrounds him, this kind of national populist, this idea that um, the, the right should give up its so-called, you know, neoliberal base. It needs to be more about community and uh, ensuring an industrial base and trade protectionism against China and it needs to represent, you know, a, a different kind of person. Um, what, what do you think we can learn from what has been a quite truly extraordinary four years and, and where you think we, we can go next and, and perhaps where will the Republicans end up going next? Hmm. Where they will end up going next is obviously a harder question to answer, but I'm happy to give my opinion on where they should go and where centre-right movements in general ought to go. Now, the, I mean, you know, you, you can look at the places I've worked and have a pretty good idea of what my my personal views are. Adam Smith Institute, uh, Reason, Cato, now the Centre for Policy Studies. I'm very much on the free market side of the of the centre right, and I would obviously love it if a pure, um, robust free market agenda uh, was an election winning one. Uh, and maybe that is the case at certain times and certain circumstances. But I do think in general, if, if, if I take off my policy wonk hat and, and try and attempt to be a political consultant for a second, um, that you can't just have a narrow, pure free market agenda and expect to be a successful centre-right party. I think that inevitably, political mu- movements have to have some sort of fusion. You have to take different groups of people with slightly different interests and enthusiasms and try and fuse them together into a movement. So I don't think that the path back to success is either becoming purely a radical free market movement or, on the other hand, going down this um, this sort of communitarian route. Um, I think that you have to try and find a way of, of meshing those two different tendencies within conservatism broadly together and coming up with some sort of coherent platform. But I think there's another thing that, that's important to look at. And, you know, basically, um, Trump has tarnished the conservative brand or the Republican brand so massively among educated people in the US. Um, you know, we all understand this. If people think that you're on the conservative side, it can be a bit awkward at at dinner parties or parties, especially the younger you are, um, you're not always the most popular person in the room. Um, But more than ever, it's kind of embarrassing, I think, um, in a lot of educated company uh, to espouse conservative and free market positions because the, the standard bearer, as most people who aren't kind of intimately involved in politics would see it, um, is such a force of personality but not really in a way that that we would welcome. You know, I think, frankly, um, conservatives have to be the adults in the room. They have to be sort of sensible, balanced, competent people, safe pair of hands, all of that kind of thing. Um, You know, the the sort of the Trump, the reality TV star, the maverick, um, the social media sensation, um, the person who will constantly own the libs, if you like, um, all of that can be so much fun for sort of people who are into punch and Judy politics, um, who really enjoy seeing the other side lose um, rather than seeing their own ideas advance. Um, but those are temptations that I think 
centre-right movements, if they're going to be successful, have to resist. The, the, the populist trend is not one that pays dividends in the long run. Um, when you look at societies getting more educated, more liberal, more diverse, and all of that, uh, and I'm not saying you have to you have to cave on everything and let the left always set the terms of debate. You know, absolutely not. But I think you have to approach things in a sensible, moderate, uh, a moderate way. Uh, you know, be careful with your tone. Don't needlessly offend people. Um, and all of these things that that we took for granted maybe in the past, um, and you know, recent political events in the US and elsewhere have maybe shaken our faith in that a bit. Um, but conservatives have to get back to that brand of politics, I think. Um, being, being the radicals and the wild men will not be a successful strategy. Uh, a politics of decency, Daniel, where, where should we go next? And are you optimistic for that? Or do you think we're just going to go through another messy few years as we're going through this quite larger field of political realignment in terms of parties and who they represent and who they might want to represent in the future? Well, I'm optimistic, certainly on some issues that are very important for free marketeers, uh, namely your housing and immigration. And I think this realignment presents an opportunity for free marketeers to form quite a powerful coalition with those on the moderate left to um, to push for more kind of YIMBY style policies, both in the UK and the US, uh, and also make a positive case for immigration as well. Uh, this is something that is kind of made easier. If, if you're not a a populist on the right, if you are someone who's kind of on the centre right and perhaps sceptical of Trump for various reasons, then I think you, you're you going to have a lot more time, you're going to be heard out a lot more by those on the centre left if you want to try and form coalitions to kind of reform these policies. Uh, so I'm optimistic on, on that sort of note. I think in terms of what we should learn more broadly, it's that, uh, yeah, again, the populist temptation is not one that people on the right should give into because it might be very nice to watch someone own the libs, as Tom said, but at the end of the day, you're getting more protectionism, you're getting more restrictions on legal and illegal immigration, you're getting a really kind of terrible uh, undermining of American institutions in the case of Trump as well. Uh, and you're not really gaining that much more out of it. You're not really able to point at a particular policy other than perhaps something like uh, full expensing in the US and say, there we go, we, we've really achieved something that we set out to do. Uh, it kind of debases what we're about, which is actually passing the policies that we care about and just focusing on personality. And for me, we've got to start moving away from that. We've got to start looking to build coalitions with people who might not be on the center right. They might not be free marketeers, but they agree on some very important issues. Um, and we need to think more carefully about what issues that we should prioritize, not just from uh, not just in terms of their impact. Um, I mean, the reason I care so much about things like housing and immigration is because I think they have a particularly strong positive impact on people's well-being and wealth and happiness, uh, but also what's politically achievable um, in this new era where actually free marketers shouldn't really be aligning themselves so strongly with uh, with the right when it's so dominated by populism. Well, I think we're running out of time, and I think this is going to be a topic which we're going to come back to over the coming weeks, particularly in the case of a, a Trump loss. In the case of a Trump victory, it might uh, very much change our analysis and, and what is the, the realm of possibility. Um, my name is Matthew Lesh. I'm the, the head of research at the ASI, and you'll be listening to Tom Cockerty, who is the head of tax at the Centre for Policy Studies, as well as Daniel Pryor, who's the head of programs 
at the ASI. Thank you very much for tuning in. Make sure you subscribe on your chosen podcast platform and uh, we'll be back next week with more of our dulcet tones. Mm-hmm.